where common sense, honest conversation, and thought-provoking discussions thrive in a completely independent forum. This is the Roundup Podcast. Here now is your host, Jeff Eager. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Oregon Roundup Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Eager. I have just wrapped up an interview with state senator, former state senator, Betsy Johnson, obviously, and well-known as independent candidate for governor in 2022. We'll have that interview here for you shortly. I think you'll enjoy it. She is always colorful, always opinionated, and had some really interesting things to say about where we stand in Oregon and how to make things better. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to touch on a couple pieces of news this morning, or at least one. I haven't been able to write about it yet, but saw this morning that the Oregon Secretary of State's office has announced that it is referring to the Oregon Department of Justice, a criminal referral against Nishad Singh, who is the former chief engineer, I believe was his title, of FTX, that cryptocurrency company that went bankrupt. A contribution in his name-ish was made in the amount of $500,000 to the Democratic Party of Oregon just a month before the 2022 election. The DPO used that money, at least in part, to help Tina Kotek win that governor's race against the aforementioned Betsy Johnson. If you're a Roundup listener, Roundup reader, you are well acquainted with this story. The Secretary of State's office entered into a settlement agreement with the Democratic Party of Oregon to reduce a civil fine that it had proposed to levy against the party and to dismiss any potential criminal referral against the party. And now that was just last week. And now this week we see that they are referring the Singh matter to the DOJ. I'll have more to write about this, more to say about this once I'm able to wrap my head around what's happened. But it sure seems to me that the timing of this is pretty clearly orchestrated to get things settled against DPO and then go ahead and make the Singh referral. The Singh referral is appropriate. I mean, there's very little question that Singh violated Oregon campaign finance laws when he made that contribution to the Democratic Party of Oregon. It's very likely that it wasn't really his money that was being contributed, that it was money that was fraudulently obtained from FTX investors. That's a scheme that Singh has pled guilty to in federal court. With regard to federal campaigns, it seems to me very likely that's what he did here in Oregon as well. It's also a violation of Oregon law. The problem is letting the Democratic Party of Oregon off the hook. No, the Democratic Party of Oregon, its wrongdoing in its filing has nothing to do with the fraud that Singh allegedly and at the the federal level admitted to committing in which Singh made donations in its name or in his name rather that was actually coming from someone else. That's a violation of the law. What the Democratic Party of Oregon did when it got the donation in early October of 2022 was to report it as coming from this entity called Prime Trust LLC out of Nevada. It was acting in a sense as a bank for Singh to make that donation, and the wire came through from that bank. I've now seen the wire transmission document. I've also gotten a bunch of new documents that I think are relevant to this that I'll be 
writing about the what happened is much clearer now that we have some more documents flying around. And the Secretary of State's office in agreeing to the settlement with the DPO made a big deal out of that. Singh's alleged fraud, but it's frankly not particularly related to the the way in which the DPO chose to misreport the donation when it was first received, even though there had been a well-publicized Oregon donation to a federal PAC where exactly the same thing happened, that Singh gave a million dollars to this federal PAC. It was misreported as coming from Prime Trust LLC. And then, oh, shoot, we need to fix it. That all came out before the DPO claimed that this donation was made by Living Trust rather than by Nishad Singh. So we'll have more on that. I just wanted to let you know that that had occurred this morning. We'll have much more to share about that and other happenings. For now, let's go ahead and get to this interview with Senator Betsy Johnson. And now I'd like to welcome Betsy Johnson to the Oregon Roundup. Betsy, well, Senator Johnson served two decades in the Oregon legislature as a Democrat, changed party affiliation to independent in 2021 and ran for governor on a platform highly critical of the policies and conditions her former party mates had created in Oregon. Since coming up short in that race, Johnson has stayed in the public eye with an op-ed in the Oregonian headline, To Save Our State, Our Leaders Must Get Our Quote-Unquote Stuff Together. Senator Johnson, welcome to the Oregon Roundup podcast. Thank you very much. I, as a native Central Oregonian, it gives me a great deal of pride to know that this show emanates from the heart of Oregon. It certainly does. I'm coming to you right now from Bend, Oregon, about the geographic center of Bend, which is near the geographic center of Oregon, of course. Senator Johnson, I want to start off with you made a very clear and articulate critique of the condition of Oregon during the campaign for governor. It's been now, boy, six months since that campaign concluded What's your take on where Oregon stands right now? Not very good. I'll be honest. I got into the race because of the rising tide of crime and violence, this never-ending homeless crisis, our schools failing too many kids, soaring cost of living, the housing supply and affordability crisis, and frankly, well-fed state government that fails to deliver on its promises. And I'll start from the bottom and work up. Right now, state government remains part of the problem. And I'll just give you a quick example. Last week, I had a problem that I thought rose to a public health crisis. People still call me. I was a senator for two decades, and a lot of people have me on speed dial under fixes stuff. And so I got a call from the people that were spraying for mosquitoes, and because of the very wet spring, mosquito larvae are hatching everywhere. And for a lot of reasons, they'd gotten grounded, and we needed to get them back up in the air. I called no less than seven state agencies. State agency people are not back at work. They have these inane messages that say, you've just called our emergency number. Please leave a message, and we'll get back to you within 48 hours. Well, great. What if I'm standing down in Seaside, and I'm watching the tsunami wave rushing at the town? I'll be waiting 48 hours for my call back. Nobody calls back. Nobody is available. First thing first, if I were the governor, I would demand that those state agency people get back to work and that we lift up a business service ethic. 
because if Oregonians can't get through to their governor, we still have a problem. The housing supply and affordability hasn't gotten any better. We're spending lots of time studying the problem. It's time to stop doing studies. We know what the damn problem is, so let's fix it. And there are a bunch of models that are out and available, and we ought to look at every single one of those as a possibility. I toured a place the other day, albeit it's in Portland. It's out on the Willamette waterfront. They are making the most interesting modular houses that for the first 12 or 14 inches in the floor is all the mechanical. It's the HVAC. It's the water heater. It's all the electrical. There's no plumbing of any kind in the walls, no electrical conduit, no nothing. It's all in this subfloor that's insulated against flooding and other catastrophes that might befall the mechanical part of a modular home. Right now, they got the company that's making this got passed over for any of the first tranche of state money, and instead it was given to a community organization with no experience in mass timber. And I think there was no competitive process that allowed this particular product called Path House to come forward and compete for available money. They have a fascinating manufacturing plan. They believe they could be turning out hundreds of these units that are modular and one can be added to another to increase the square footprint. But they never got a chance at bidding on the money because, frankly, it went to one of the most favored not-for-profits. The soaring cost of living, just try to buy gas or eggs. Our schools remain a mess, and the agenda dominated by the OEA. The housing thing I want to save until last because I got the strongest opinion about that, and the crime and violence remains in downtown. Whenever I go downtown, I just consider the chassis of the car the gift wrap for my catalytic converter, and I'm always thrilled that I get it back in one piece. I wouldn't walk in downtown Portland alone right now at night to save my life, and frankly, I think that's what hangs in the balance. And then let me come back with the last of my rant, and that's about homelessness. The governor has one methodology to solve homelessness. I believe it is a completely flawed methodology, and that is you put a roof over somebody's head first and then try to figure out what are the underlying problems. I've been trying to help a person that's homeless get off the streets for the last six months, and I can tell you that Tina's housing first philosophy does not work. And I don't think it will work. And throwing another $300 million on top of the $200 million that she's already gotten the legislature to approve is just going to be continuing to feed the homelessness industry and not really move the needle very much on getting people off the streets. Well, you've hit everything. We're done with the interview, Senator Johnson. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, no, and I'm if just I kidding. sound like I need a rabies shot, it's because I need a rabies shot. I'm <laughs> angry. I'm angry at all of the study words and the no-action words. I'm angry that people that are supposed to be serving Oregonians aren't. I'm angry that little regulatory issues blossom into full-fledged assault on natural resource people. I've been trying to get, since I was still in the Senate, a dump in banks cleaned up that is a nasty place. I can't get any action there, but by God, some farmer down in Tillamook sticks a shovel in a, in a drainage ditch, and the might of the state of Oregon will descend upon that poor beleaguered farmer to bust him six ways from Sunday. Our priorities are all screwed up, and as I started to say already, natural resources are under assault with Governor Brown's ill-conceived habitat conservation plan, 
And oh, by the way, just in case we didn't have enough trouble, now we've got FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, coming in with a much more aggressive look at flooding that is functionally going to disallow a lot of people from being able to get mortgage insurance if they are deemed in FEMA's flood areas. So it's like every day you pick up the paper, there is something else that is making life more difficult for Oregonians rather than fixing it. Absolutely. And that sentiment that I certainly agree with, and I suspect most folks listening to this podcast agree with, and I, I'm really glad that you're you're on with us today because I think many of us, you know, agree, agree entirely with your critique of what's wrong with Oregon. And it does seem like there's so much going on in so many different ways, so much going wrong in so many different ways. It's hard to keep track of it. And it just seems so unbelievably bad. And enormously contradictory, because I've just laid out all the things that are bad and wrong and screwed up. And yet the revenue forecast came out yesterday, very robust revenue forecast. And the immediate response of the Democrats, frankly, in the legislature is, let's steal everybody's kicker because there's going to be an extremely robust kicker. It is amazing to me that even with more revenue that could potentially go to the legislature, instead of talking about fixing stuff, we're talking about creating more shiny objects. I mean, with this first tranche of housing money, as I understand it, because potential beneficiaries don't align with the governor's housing first philosophy, that we could actually be shutting down organizations that are doing good work with a demonstrable track record and opening up new ones that conform to a model that is being prescribed from Salem. There are those kind of contradictions that I think most common sense Oregonians just can't reconcile. Well, and there there are contradictions between results and promises, right? I mean, so even if you take, you know, what Tina Kotek says she wants to have happen, which is for people at the bottom of the income scale to do better and people who are kind of, you know, have been discriminated against to do better, the downtrodden in our society to be benefited, you look across these issues from housing to natural resources which disproportionately impact rural and therefore less prosperous parts of the state, the policies that come out of Salem and their results, their measurable objective results, are demonstrably bad for those people. Do you think that they realize they're not working and they want to do them anyway? Or do you think we're just, you know, it's like the old thing with communism, we just haven't tried it right yet? Yes, is the answer to your question. I mean, it's both. It is a complete lack of understanding about the rest of the state outside of the I-5 corridor. There's a magazine that I take a little credit for helping to name called The Other Oregon, and that really describes what's going on. When I was traveling around the state running for governor, the farther south you went, the farther east you went, the madder people got. And so recently, KGW has tapped me to do some political analysis for them. Frankly, I wish I was on the TV more because I'm certainly not shy with opinions. But be that as it may, they had a young reporter call me, and the question that she posed was, is this greater Oregon thing possible? And I said, my dear, you're asking exactly the wrong question. It's not how difficult greater Oregon would be to achieve. It is why do 11, and now I believe it has blossomed up to 12, why do 12 counties want to leave the bosom of Oregon and go someplace else? That's the question. 
And so I finally convinced Pat Doris that it might be worth their while to actually go to Eastern Oregon. He asked me to get him some names, and so instead of calling people and saying, are you pissed, it was how pissed are you, and I think that in his trip to Eastern Oregon, he got a little bit of the flavor of the fact that people that live in the south and live in the east of the state believe that their legislature doesn't understand them, doesn't hear them, doesn't give them a square shot at the political playing field, and they're truly angry about it. So part of it is the legislature discharging on a national, very progressive agenda. Part of it is just benign neglect of places in Oregon South and East. I mean, you'll notice when Tina rolled out the first housing plan, it didn't include the coast and it didn't include Eastern Oregon. And it was only through the good offices of those legislators that represent that area, screaming like mash cats, that they got included. And even then, it was a de minimis amount of money. There's need out there as well. I simply think that it is a failure to communicate across political lines, geographic lines, and the might of the majority to describe, pass, and implement an agenda that is not responsive to or in some cases even conscious of the fact that the legislation could be made good for all Oregonians if all Oregonians through their representatives were included in the negotiations. Even beyond a lack of communication, I think that a lot of Oregonians outside the I-5 corridor rightly believe that there that the folks who rule this state and a whole lot of the folks who covered the people who rule this state in the media actually loathe the people that aren't in the I-5 corridor and and look at them at best with pity, at worst as as kind of enemies of what they're trying to accomplish statewide. And that's a kind of, and I'd be curious, you've been around state government for a heck of a long time. First of all, do you think I'm right with that, that there's actually animus from the folks who run the state toward people in the more rural parts of the state? And if so, has that changed over time? I would characterize it not as animus, but as disdain. That somehow somebody that makes their living as a logger is a bad person and must, by definition, hate the environment. I have found that farmers and loggers are generally environmental stewards. Farmers have to have healthy land to produce the crops that they earn their living with. It's more disdain, and it's particularly manifest in the natural resource area. This habitat conservation plan, at the same time that we're talking about developing cross-laminated timbers in all sorts of applications in Oregon, if this HCP passes, and the hearing is in sisters on the 7th, it's going to diminish the supply of timber off state lands exponentially. And so where does the fiber come from that we produce all of these desired mass timber things if we block off huge parts of the forest for conservation purposes? Now, make no mistake, I am all about protecting those precious places that need protection. But by putting what's left of the timber industry in northwest Oregon out of business with the passage of this habitat conservation plan and then lamenting the fact that mass timber hasn't taken off, another one of these weird contradictions that exists in Oregon, and I think it's a generalized lack of understanding about natural resource economies, rural people. It's manifest in the legislative agenda that has been present for the last couple of sessions. 
Absolutely. And I want to get into a little bit about more on homeless policy, Senator Johnson. That's something you talked a lot about during your campaign for governor. You've already brought it up here today. One of my favorite nicknames for Tina Kotek is one that you came up with during that campaign, I think during the campaign, in which you called her Tent City Tina. Can you t- tell us why why you think that's an appropriate name for her? And is it still an appropriate name for her now that she's been in office for six months or so? Yes and yes. As Speaker, shepherded through legislation that made it more difficult to remove the tents from urban areas. And that's why I felt somewhat emboldened to stick that moniker on her. Then the other thing is that what she and her folks seem to not get is the fact that just throwing money at this problem isn't fixing anything. The amount of money sloshing around in Portland right now is breathtaking. And the proliferation of tents is similarly breathtaking. So if we're doing such a dandy job fixing stuff, why, are the, why is the evidence not manifest? And I would go to Deborah Kafori's downtown boondoggle, this mental health center that she got money from the legislature, not with my help. I stepped on the air hose of that a couple of times. Four-story, basically, drop-in center for people that want to drink and use drugs. And, oh, yeah, there might be a few sobriety beds up on the top floor. Well, if I'm hanging on to my sobriety from methamphetamine addiction, the last thing I want to do is to crawl through a bunch of people that are using to get to my little pallet up on the fourth floor where I can try to hang on to a a sober lifestyle. Surprise, surprise, lots of people said that place is going to fail, and lo and behold, it failed. And why did it fail? Because the staff in there was dealing drugs, there were inappropriate relationships, people were using And the business people around that site had predicted that it would fail. During the interregnum while it was closed, the crime dropped precipitously. So we don't have metrics. We just hang out a shingle that says, I'm going to cure homelessness. We create executive directors, development directors, boards and staff, and we proliferate a landscape of people purporting to help, and we don't measure what are the metrics to get people off the street. This garbage about measuring throughput rather than outcomes is just astonishing to me. The ballot measure 110 people taking credit for having served, you know, gazillions of people. What served mean? Does it mean we answer the phone or does it mean that you helped someone achieve sobriety? And were they sober for two hours, two days, two weeks, two years? Did they get a job? When did they relapse? If they're coming out of prison, what's the time in between a release and recidivism? I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking to me, all the dumb stuff that we've done. And speaking of contradictions, again, under Kate Brown, her release of people that were never supposed to see the outside of a penitentiary, and then complaining about violence and proliferation of crime on the streets, Well, when you've just opened the penitentiary doors and said to everybody, go forth and do good, it's amazing to me that that's happening. That's another one of these blistering contradictions. I think you bring up some excellent points, Senator. And I think what I've perceived over the last few years, and I'll be curious to hear if you think I'm right about this, is that a few years ago, say in, in 2020, most of the Oregon public was unaware of kind of how badly state policies were failing them on these important issues. I think to a degree that's changed. If you look at polling statewide and even in Portland, 
people get it on homelessness now. Even Democrats get it on homelessness. They get it on crime. People want a more strict approach to crime. They don't want to let people out of prison anymore. They realize that they need to clean up these camps in Portland and elsewhere around the state. The new poll that came out this week showing that a large majority of Oregonians think Measure 110 should be repealed if that mean even if that means keeping some of the funding in place they disagree with the decriminalization they see that it's not working so to the degree that i'm right that the public the voting public in oregon is they kind of get it now why has that not yet translated into a material change in policy on these issues well i think the transformation has started it hasn't had time to fully bloom the fact that some of these dumb ballot measures like that uh, capital gains tax in Portland fell with an 80% no vote, basically that was you've got money and they don't, let's take some of yours and give it to somebody else. And with no down-the-road look at the unintended consequences on you know, fixed-income people whose largest asset may be their home and the source of any foundational wealth that they may have accumulated, nobody thinks that through. That has been a hallmark of the Oregon legislature of late, that you pass this kind of feel-good stuff. Nobody looks at the downstream consequences of what it is that you're doing. But I think people are finally reaching a boiling point. It will be interesting to see how our new governor and her staff navigate that. She's gone out for these quote-unquote listening tours. When she came to Columbia County, where I live, the local electeds were not informed. Legislators were not informed. She just sort of showed up, had some photo ops, and blew out of town. She visited a school and a health center, the project in one of the larger cities in Columbia County, St. Helens. There was no real opportunity for input from Oregonians. And were I doing listening tours, I'd want to come all, you know, come one, come all, and let's hear what's on your mind not these kind of sanitized staged photo ops. There is a lot going on right now in Oregon. A lot of people are highly dissatisfied. And it's time to start showing some measurable results. What's the return on investment for the gobs of money that we're spending on stuff? And again, not throughputs, but outcomes. We don't have that metric and nobody is demanding it. That's true. No one no one is demanding it. You know, I observed something similar with Governor Kotek's recent trip to Eastern Oregon is kind of following that in the news and and otherwise in her Twitter feed. And she would come into a a town, you know, the Dalles, for example, Wallowa County, and drop in on, you know, a state agency, drop in on a nonprofit or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with state agency workers and nonprofits, She's not going to hear from the folks that are so mad about Oregon that they're voting in large numbers to leave the state, going to those places. And I think she's really so far missed an opportunity to hear from people that disagree with her about why they disagree with her and and what they think ought to be done to make their lives better, because where they live is a heck of a lot different than Portland. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. A- accountability across the board. I mean, I certainly don't exchange Christmas cards with Shamia Fagan. We serve together in the legislature, and philosophically, we, we probably couldn't be farther apart. I applaud her for doing the honorable thing and resigning. The hole she dug for herself, the ethical hole that she dug for herself, was unbelievable. 
and it seems like in every successive day that some other shoe falls. Oh, by the way, it just wasn't the side gig for people that you're auditing. It was we flew the kids to an Easter egg roll in the on the East Coast on public money. It was Tina knew about it well before it became public. At least Secretary, former Secretary of State Fagan accepted some degree of responsibility for unbelievably bad judgment. And I'm glad that happened. In Oregon, I think there's been kind of the notion that you can weather the storm. That one was so egregious you couldn't. And now it remains to Tina to see, does she place a caretaker in there or does she anoint one of the party princelings to get on the fast track to be able to mount their own campaign for governor? That remains to be seen, but at least I'm saying there was some degree of accountability with the departure of our former Secretary of State. And and you you're you're right about that. And I guess the cynic in me would say that that accountability was probably forced from on high because Fagan had become such a political liability that they couldn't have her around anymore, and they needed her. They needed her out of there, so she was an easy one to get rid of. To the degree this Lamoda stuff and some of the other kind of scandal stuff swirling around Salem continues to creep closer to Kotek herself, as you mentioned, her knowing about the the Lamoda relationship with Fagan a week before, and her having done nothing about it, said nothing about it until it was in the media. To the degree Kotek is implicated in more of this stuff, it'll be interesting how much accountability they take over there. I completely agree with you. And the thing that horrified me was sacks of cash. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) God, Uh, particularly because some of the individuals that were the beneficiaries of those sacks of cash have talked about how transparent and open Oregon's accountability is that all contributions have to be recorded on a program called Orstar. And suddenly now there's allegations of bags of cash. I used to think we were better than New Jersey, and I'm beginning to wonder at this point. I don't think the last shoe has dropped on the uh, LaModa thing. I mean, the fact that Tina knew a week before this side gig became public is unconscionable. And to now demand that pot businesses have to pay their taxes before they can get a license Well, that to me seems like a sine qua non. We shouldn't be issuing licenses to anybody if they are in arrears on their civic obligations. Tina's uh, announcing loudly that she was going to refer Shamia's stuff to Ellen Rosenbaum, our attorney general, for criminal prosecution. What she doesn't say, cynically, is Ellen has no authority to do that kind of an investigation. And so I think people are starting to get wise. It's podcasts and uh, writing like yours, Portland Real, run by Angela Todd up here in Portland, that are willing to take these courageous stands and then find themselves marginalized or name-calling because they pointed out in some cases the emperor doesn't have any clothes. People like you that are willing to do the research, craft the well-written pieces, get them out in public. Portland Descent is another vehicle where people are not afraid to call out some of the less desirable stuff that's going on in the state. And the response has largely been to try to marginalize those dissenting voices. Yep, it is. And fortunately, I'm already marginalized enough. They don't have to do a whole lot to me in order to get there. But the You know, Oregon, I wrote a piece not long ago that Oregon used to be known as kind of a clean government place. I mean, even in my lifetime. 
and political awareness. It was known as, you know, a place that people mostly did the right thing from an ethical standpoint in politics. I mean, I you mentioned New Jersey. I would argue that Oregon is definitely not in the top. It's it's in the bottom quartile of states in terms of its its political ethics, if not very near the bottom of that. And it's just getting worse. I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg on that between the La Moda stuff you mentioned in this, you know, Democrat Party of Oregon contribution that I keep writing about in kind of the conflicts that exist within state government regarding that. How do we fix that from a systematic or procedural standpoint? You know, can we can we empower the legislature to do better oversight or does that even work because they're all the same party? What are your thoughts about cleaning up state government in Oregon? When I became the chair of the Audits Committee in the legislature, I was working very hard with the Legislative Fiscal Office to try to beef up the legislature's ability to perform its own audits and not have to go through the Secretary of State so that we could subscribe to generally accepted auditing principles and actually initiate and conduct our own audits for the benefit of the legislature. And they weren't political pieces so much as they were really get under the hood and see what's going on. Let me drop back just a little bit be funny about New Jersey. I mean, maybe I watch too many Tony Soprano shows, but I'm disgusted by what's happening in Oregon. I am about to feel how old I am by saying that I go back long enough to have seen Governor Atiyah's performance as governor. I can't think of a more honorable and ethical man of integrity than Governor Atiyah. My father served in the legislature during the sort of halcyon days of Governor McCall, when legislators, be they Republican, Democrat, regardless of where their geological territories were, they liked each other. They trusted each other. They would fight in principled debates on the floor of the House or the Senate, and then they would all repair down to this nasty old bar that since burned down called the Marion Motor Hotel. And they'd have a few drinks, maybe a few too many drinks, but they trusted each other and they could make deals. And when somebody shook hands, a deal was a deal. And we've gotten away from that. We're toadying a party ideology right now. And believe me, I know because I frequently balked at the company line and I'd get a visit from one of the higher ups on the political side of the legislature reminding me that you need to ride for the brand or we're going to take your gavel away from you. That's one of the little known or recognized bad behaviors of the Oregon legislature is this underlying threat that if you're not a good soldier and hang in there for the party's ideology, you'll be punished, you'll be demoted. Peter Courtney knocked me off of a committee a couple of times. He later reinstated me, but I had told them loud and clear I would not support one of the the initiatives. I got the visit that said, I'm going to kick you off ways and means. Elections matter. Ballot measure elections matter. Oregonians got sold a bill of goods on ballot measure 110 because they didn't pay attention. I think that more right-thinking folks are getting sick of the dogma on both sides. It's not just the D's. The R's can be equally intransigent and goofy. We've got to look for middle-of-the-road people that are willing and capable of negotiating to the middle which means not everybody gets everything they want, but we have input. If a law is good for one Oregonian, it ought to be good for all Oregonians. And we've lost that ethic. I want to be sensitive to your time here, but one more kind of line of questioning for you. You mentioned that you're doing some political analysis for KGW, 
wrote an op-ed in the Oregonian. I know you've got business and other stuff that you do. What's next for you politically? Well, I'm going to stay in the public square. First of all, it's a target-rich environment. And I don't want in this podcast with you or this conversation with you to come across as just a scold and a nag. I was criticized for calling out some of Oregon's shortcomings during the gubernatorial campaign as just being a shrill nag. I'd like to believe that shrill nag translates into demanding accountability and performance, but uh, shrill nag, that's possible. My point is it's a target-rich environment, and unless people are willing to speak out and damn the consequences, to answer your earlier question, nothing is going to change. I understand now that I no longer have a title in front of my name that I'm going to cool down as all no longer in the legislature politicians and governors cool down over time. But for right now, I still have a podium, I still have a voice, I still have opinions, I still remain a student of the political scene in our civic square in Oregon, and I intend to stay very fully engaged in demanding accountability and calling out the places where I think Oregon is sadly falling down. Good. Well, we hope you stick with it, Senator. Really appreciate your time today. We'd love to have you back on sometime. May I just share a point of personal privilege Please. as we end this conversation? I'm sitting in my office that's located at the Scapoos Airport, and I'm looking at a picture of Mount St. Helens erupting. It was 43 years ago today that I was in a helicopter flying up over Mount St. Helens. We couldn't get over the mountain. There was a cordon sanitaire, but I was flying up there the day of the eruption along with anybody else who had anything that could take to the air. We stayed up there, my little helicopter company, for the next 10 years as one of the prime contractors to the geological, U.S. Geological Survey as the mountain was studied and reseeded and recovered. I started out that morning in central Oregon. Our shop called and said the mountain had blown. I got in my car, drove over here like a bat out of hell, and if we'd had a 1,000 helicopters on the ramp, we could have launched every one of them. Today's a, it's an amazing day, not only to reflect on what happened all those years ago, but to realize that it was, in fact, 43 years ago at 8.23 this morning. Absolutely. That was, I, was, I was five years old, but I remember it. Remember I'm not going to well. tell you how old I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, Senator Johnson, thank you so much. Keep up your good work. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back soon. I'd welcome the opportunity to come back. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Senator Johnson. I enjoyed talking to her. It's always entertaining, and she has very well thought out and not restrained opinions about what's going on in Oregon, most of which I agree with, if not all of which I agree with. It was great to have her on the podcast to talk about all that stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, hope you're having a good week. Hope you have a good weekend. Stay tuned for some more stuff about the ongoing Democratic Party of Oregon and Nishad Singh and Secretary of State and or DOJ stuff. There's a lot moving on that. And when I come up for air from other stuff, I'm going to write about it again. If you haven't already, please follow the Oregon Roundup podcast on your podcast app of choice, be that Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or Spotify. Give us a five-star review if you like it. That helps other people find us, helps our audience grow, helps other people get exposed to the wonderful content that you get exposed to as someone who listens to and hopefully reads the Oregon Roundup podcast. You can sign up for the newsletter if you're not already on the list at OregonRoundup.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Roundup Podcast. 
To share your thoughts with Jeff, you can email him at jeff at OregonRoundup.com. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at OregonRoundup.substack.com.